you know, it's, it's very easy to run for something instead of running against something. And I think a lot of the work that we do is, is, is work that's working for kind of a common beneficial goal to that. end, I feel like the, the work we're doing, even if it is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, enabling the, the more progressive and democratic sides of our political system, I think it's still beneficial to both sides. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Maddie Eden, is the Chief Technology Officer at Movement Labs, a movement incubator and digital consultancy. Maddie is a technologist whose more recent career has brought her into the technology and organizing space, including co-founding Civitech and Register to Vote. I was very interested to hear her story and understand her role in creating and improving these organizations. If you are interested in progressive politics and technology, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Maddie at Movement Labs. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Maddie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Oh, geez. My name is Maddie Eden. I am uh, the CTO for Movement Labs and Contest Every Race. Before that, I was the CTO and co-founder at Civitech, as well as uh, Registered Vote. I am a former uh, state legislative house candidate from Texas, as well as <laughs> a very brief congressional candidate. Prior to that, I probably spent about 20 the 30 years working in the, the Austin uh, tech uh, scene. I read somewhere something about your entry into tech as a young person. When is it that you first get interested in programming? How did that happen and what attracted you to it? When I was about five years old, my dad brought me home a computer. It was a TI. And yeah, all of my friends had had Ataris at that point. They had the video games and I, I really wanted them as well. So I asked my dad exactly like, where are the games for this thing? And he handed me a, a magazine that contained a whole bunch of source code for video games. And he was like, you need to type it in. And I was like, okay, I can do that. So like over the course of, you know, a month or two, like and hunting and pecking, I, yeah, I, I kind of coded my first game, saved it to tape drive. And, you know, and, and then, yeah, after that, I just really kind of got interested in it. So it's not too different than me. I, I got an Apple II Plus, must have been somewhere in junior high school. It didn't come with a lot, but I remember looking at the source code to, it was a version of Breakout. And, and I remember just changing things, changing the length of the, of the paddle in, in some variable or things like that. And found that and then started playing with existing programs and then writing programs on my own. It was like having a remote control toy, uh, except way better because you could really tell it what to do. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's really cool. And that's actually, you know, honestly, the fastest way to learn like coding, in my opinion, like that's why changing existing code was how I taught all of my kids how to program. How many kids do you have? I have four sons, uh, 15, 18, 21, 25. And they all code? Uh, yeah, they all know. They've all known how to code since they were about, you know, at least nine or 10. So how much time did you spend as a young person doing that sort of thing? I mean, a lot of time, actually, like that was, you know, back then when I was in 12, 11, 13, I got into the BBS scene quite a bit. Yeah, I spent a, a lot of time on my computer. It was where I made my friends. It was where, you know, I, I you know, had social interaction back before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like that, too. Did you do a formal uh, study of computer science at all? I mean, I did some some CS classes in community college growing up. But back then, there was a lot less hands-on work at that point. And so, yeah, I, I kind of finished community college, got an associate's degree, and just jumped right into And I did that pretty early on and then jumped straight into doing network engineering. I, I actually jumped into network engineering while I was still attending classes. So It's like Novell Networks or something? or what, Oh, what yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did Netware, Sco Unix, Banyan Vines, yeah, all that stuff. Did you go to college beyond the associates? No, no. I mean, not really. I encourage, you know, everybody attend school. It hasn't been that important for a lot of technical people to get the formal education always. I mean, I've seen so many successful folks who didn't make it to college because they found good paying jobs and they got on a path and it wasn't bad for them. That's the root of it right there. You can only like know more than your professors for so long before it really starts to get irritating. And yeah, the, the money was good. It didn't take me long before I was like, I just kind of um, got a, you know, I got a job offer as a contractor up at Dell. Uh, and so I just like came straight up to Austin I'm from San Antonio because it was really good money. And I'd had my first uh, kid at that point. And um, yeah, I just kind of needed to focus on the work. Tell me about like being a software developer and architect at Dell. What were you doing and what, what were you learning about programming and, and related things at the time? Honestly, like when I came on there, it was not to do software development. I came on there to do test engineering and, and, and validation for like, uh, you know, dead operating systems <laughs> um, like Spanion and NetWare. I was there for about a year before they figured out that I could write code and and did a big reorg and, and moved me out of there <laughs> because I went from like, you know, just working on like Optiplex business systems to, to working on everything that the company produced in a very short amount of time. What languages were you working in? Oh, goodness. At that point, it was mostly JavaScript, Java, VB, .NET. We were doing a lot of work with Microsoft and C++ uh, and, and, you know, the early onset of C Sharp. And, and so, yeah, uh, I started programming Java in 93. And that's, that's what I started running with at Dell initially. But, you know, also a lot of different test automation frameworks. What do you think makes a good developer or programmer? What do you think are the characteristics? Problem solving. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. The ability to like problem solve and and to learn new things very quickly. The desire to kind of like be a maker virtually, right, is very important. Were those good years, the years at Dell? It was uh, learning, right? A lot of learning uh, and a lot of like, you know, picking up business acumen, things that, that I didn't hadn't had the ability to develop. And it was very high pressure there. It was easily, you know, one of the most competitive like technical environments in the industry, I think at that point. It was good though. I learned a whole lot. What was next for you? 
AMD? Yeah. Yeah. AMD was after that, which was kind of an interesting transition, I guess. Not too big a jump, but it was certainly a learning experience in terms of like the big companies in learning that not all of them had the same like sort of business ethics or even consideration towards like how overseas business should be executed, things like that. Uh, Are you saying AMD left something short there compared to Dell or? Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's a much longer story for sure. But yes, I I didn't, I stayed at AMD for a couple of years, but it was not like a, like a long-term sort of place that I really wanted to be kind of a big advocate for, open standards and, you know, and, and, and free and fair and competitive markets. And, and so uh, at that time, when I went over to AMD, it, Dell was kind of in the midst of uh, yeah, kind of the beginning of an antitrust suit between, you know, Intel and Microsoft and Dell. And, and so making it so that they could work with other processor manufacturers, I thought was really important at the time. And then after I spent a couple of years with another <laughs> processor manufacturer that wasn't Intel, it became more apparent as to maybe why they, it, it had been that way to begin with. I don't know. You've clearly become a political person with a bunch of your recent employment. And you're kind of talking like you were political in a different way back then. Did you grow up political or what, when do you make a transition to being politicized I would say 2000 with the, the Gore, Gore Bush, yeah, yeah. Gore Bush uh, election. It activated a lot of folks, especially tech folks in Austin seemed to really kind of be receptive to it because we'd, you know, we'd, we'd basically uh, been dealing with Bush for years. In retrospect, you look at the guy and he's like compared to... Compared to Mr. Trump, he's, he <laughs> seems tame, right? Oh, yeah. It's like so tame. You know, that was a big point where I kind of like identified myself from a political standpoint. My dad was very conservative. My mother is super, super liberal. It took me a few years, but then I decided at a point that I didn't really want to be working in like big tech anymore. And I kind of focused on some startup stuff and kind of became a little bit more aligned with, you know, doing social impact work and nonprofit work and kind of like making a difference. You work at Dell and AMD for like a decade and and you blink and it's gone, right? when you look at it that way, it's like you learn a whole lot, but at the same time, like your ability to have an impact on anything that was really consequential aside from like the, the cost of a PC or how available operating systems are, that becomes really a more difficult thing. Well, tell me about the several companies you worked on before you get to Civitech. What were you learning there about business and, and smaller companies and entrepreneurial environments. After AMD, I went over to Hot Schedules, which was kind of an interesting place. And that was really kind of like my first system that we, that I, you know, had helped build out that was like highly available for, you know, millions of concurrent users simultaneously. And, and building out the back end for that was really kind of an experience that I really enjoyed. The security aspects of it, everything, the InfoSec pieces were a lot of fun to work on. And it was like the advent of virtualization technology as, as like mainstream. And so like being able to implement that and deploy that was was a really good experience as well. That company I thought was pretty decent in terms of like making things easier for, for people who were working, you know, in, in like food service. Yeah, after that, you know, I, I just kind of started working, um, doing some like building out automation for IT management systems, you know, and trying to help some people that I knew that were in that space. And then it was like after a year or two of that, I, I kind of stumbled on this whole um, concept of blockchain technology and really, really kind of dug into that in about 2011, 2012 and, and started like working heavily in like the crypto space, which was kind of a 
which was another kind of crazy like period as a technology. I still think blockchain is, 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 is brilliant, you know, but like have found a ton of use cases for it, uh, especially in like the public healthcare sector and the adoption of it has been, you know, pretty widespread at this point. But when you talk about the cryptocurrency aspect of it, it's like that becomes a, a different sort of animal. And so, you know, worked on, worked on a lot of like blockchain related startups and groups that built out like, uh, remittance systems for like third world countries, places where they didn't have banking, stuff like that, you know, built out some low cost devices, prototyped those and distributed them all over the world. And, and that kind of kept me busy until about 2015. The whole time I did that, I did a lot of nonprofit work on the side as well with different groups. One of the nonprofits I was working with in 2015 and 2016 was a, this, this online hosted database of, of all of this information about Texas and parks and cities and like government stuff in Texas. And like in 2016, it got packed um, like, a, like a lot of different websites did that contain that kind of information and all that information just got drained. And, and I don't know what it was used for or how useful it was. IP traced back where those hacks came from and originating from, you know, yeah, Russia raised some red flags and, and, and that really kind of got me activated in, into what was happening with, with the election in 2016. And that's kind of, I think when I really like was like, okay, I need to be doing something more relevant, like on the political side. I think that was kind of when that switch changed was 2016. And I know that's a really common thread that a lot of people will go down. It's like, okay, 2016 changed it all for me. It was kind of eye opening. I had a previous guest on this podcast by the name Jeremy Smith. I guess I hadn't paid attention that he had a co-founder. I learned when you were introduced through your current work to me that you had been there at the start of Civitech and registered to vote. And I'm curious about it. How did you meet him? How did you decide to do something together? What, what's the story there? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Jeremy's really kind of amazing. It was a weird thing. Sometime in 2017, I decided, you know what, I don't understand this shit enough. What I decided was I was going to go run for office. I didn't know what I was going to run for. And I, you know, and I, honestly, I like, I was like, maybe I could run for more than one thing, Just, you know, because I kind of wanted to like understand the whole system and how it worked. And I figured there was no better way to do that than just throwing yourself into the middle of it. And so I started harassing this guy down at the Texas Democratic Party office named Glenn Maxey <laughs> on a regular basis. And ultimately, I ended up filing to run in the congressional primaries along with 100 other people. And so I, I got to know a lot of about the system and a lot about the failings of the system here in Texas, especially, and, and just really about the voter registration pieces of it. I had folks who were working with on my campaign that were driving around with, with laser printers to print out voter registration forms because we were covering so many counties and there was no way to really do voter registration in a lot of these counties without becoming a deputy registrar. And they didn't offer classes in some of them. And so it was, it was a big mess. After I lost the primary, of course, to a, to a guy named Mike Siegel, who's a really amazing guy as well. I uh, went and started having, you know, meeting with Glenn Maxey because I figured out that like this guy here, like he really knew his stuff. He was just like a wealth of information and crazy ideas. And generally speaking, kind of historically been a bit of a troublemaker. Glenn started throwing like these crazy ideas at me about voter registration systems and how like in a dream world, this is what he would do. And I'm, he's like, if only I knew somebody who could build this. And I was like, I could build that for you pretty quick. And he was just like, 
you know, he's like, really? I was like, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe a day or two, I can knock out a prototype of it. Uh, yeah. And so he's like, you know what, I, I want to introduce you to somebody else. And I was like, oh, okay. And so at the time I was spending a lot of time in, in the, uh, I live in Bastrop County and near the city of Bastrop, which is just outside Austin. And we have had a little democratic party office on main street there. And I was spending a ton of time there. And so, yeah, it was like one day Glenn, like just sent me a text message and he said, Oh, I'm sending this guy over to meet you right now. And I was just like, okay, I'm just sitting at the party office. That's fine. In walks this Jeremy Smith. <laughs> he wasn't really that much older than like my oldest kid. And so I was like not taking any of it seriously. And he was like, can you build it? And I was like, I was like, sure, I can. He laid out the idea for like the, the initial like register to vote implementation. And I was like, sure, I could build that. And he was, uh, he was very persuasive about like knocking it out very quickly and this and that. And, and he had all of these really like cool ideas he came in on a Friday and then that weekend I basically built out the first registered vote system and threw it online. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of an innovative thing because it, 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 it attacked a problem that I had had during the congressional primaries, like with voter registration and being able to register people to vote quickly and easily uh, in Texas by providing a web portal that allowed people to verify if they were registered to vote. And then it would, you know, in theory, mail them out an actual physical voter registration application, which was, of course, at that point, you know, we put it online. That was done by us. And I was like, well, we don't have a system to do all of this other stuff. And, and Jeremy was like, it's, that's okay. We don't need that. We, we'll just, we'll just hand mail all this stuff. And I was like, I was like, all right. And so like we built that out. And then I didn't realize that I'd gotten myself into a much bigger like problem at that point because he was like, okay, well, now that we've got that, wouldn't it be cool if we could like track how the mail is going and how long it takes to get to these counties and whether or not these counties are submitting it back to the SOS in a quick way and we should be tracking when they end up on the rolls. And I'm just like, oh, great. I was like, what have I gotten myself into? And so, yeah, I spent the next many months building out all of that and learning a lot more about like US mail system than I ever wanted to know. And by the end of 2018, we had, you know, I guess basically built out this army of volunteers who helped us hand stuff like half a million voter registration forms. The system itself went from like a website where people <laughs> were like, yeah, yeah, where people could go and sign up for a voter registration form. And it went from being very basic to something that like the Texas Secretary of State was recommending that everybody in the state use for voter registration as opposed to their stuff. The data part of it was the coolest piece. We had partnered with a young lady at the time who was just brilliant and in her own right um, and was the data director for the Texas Democratic Party. Who was that? Lauren Pulley. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've had her on too. She's so damn smart. We basically figured out these ways of identifying unregistered voters and identifying them in a way that we could link to partisanship or, you know, to turnout propensity, that we could link to where they had just moved. And, and so it was kind of like an untapped thing. And there were groups like VPC who had been doing that kind of like voter targeting and mailing and had had very like low success rates in the past. And I've kind of brought that up at the time, but we were like, we're going to do this anyway, because we were getting a really high turnaround on, on these, on these like forms that were going out in the mail. And so we identified, you know, half a million people in 2018. We did it in a really like targeted way. We identified a lot of these like state house seats that were on the cusp 
and we really just kind of pushed to register as many Democrats at scale as we could. And we organized this army of volunteers. We hand stuffed these envelopes. We got pictures of it. It was it was a real undertaking. And we, we did it all for like a very, very small amount of money that, that Jeremy and I paid for out of pocket. You know, when it was all said and done, we ended up registering like out of that, we registered 150,000 voters. The 120,000, give or take, were prior to the election. It was a really successful program that I think made a really big impact during 2018 in terms of like improving the overall dynamic of the Texas State House for sure. That whole program was kind of where Civitech had uh, grown out of. That was a learning experience. Uh, yeah, that turned into a really long story. I, I mean, I could continue going on about it, but it was. Um, I would like you to continue going on about it. I've talked enough to Jeremy to know that he is a very persuasive person and he feels like a leader and he seems like he got pretty lucky in running into you who had all of these skills and this interest at the same time. It seems like a very intriguing kind of founding partnership. Tell me a little bit more about working together and what is the story as you go forward? It was a really good working relationship. He's like you said, very persuasive. I didn't realize like when I met him at the time, like that he is a proven leader, right? Um, you know, West Point grad, Marshall Scholar, you know, um, war hero. I had been friends with his mom before I even met him. And I didn't even know that up at that point. Uh, and that was kind of weird. But um, yeah, it just, he, he looked so young and it took me a while to realize that like this kid was a big deal. He's got his own kid now. He does. He's got another one on the way. It's very cute. And he's starting to look like an old man now, which is funny to me. It was a really good relationship. We'd have ideas. We'd bounce them off each other. We, you know, we could both do field organizing really well. We, you know, we started partnering with folks like Deborah Cleaver and, and Vote.org and just a lot of other social impact and, you know, community impact groups. And uh, we were both pretty well rooted in Texas. And so we did a lot of organizing here as well. And we had a really good sandbox here, right? Which is big red state was a lot of places to really kind of like test out new ideas and, and a very oppressive uh, government that was focused on voter suppression. And, and it brought a different lens to the whole thing, right? Because most folks don't want to play in Texas from a value proposition. It's not, not uh, ideal. It's a lot of media markets, very difficult to flip in a presidential election. And the costs as opposed to like targeting other states and doing impact there is, is almost not worth it. It was good. And so we figured it, it was like there was a whole process of growing register to vote and making that like a functional nationwide and coming up with a whole lot of new ideas and, and building out tools for candidates and, and really kind of, you know, big data solutions to to problems that seemed, I don't know, very entrenched and very uh, focused on maintaining the status quo and, and, and not necessarily like there wasn't enough innovation, like in the field of like political tech, like from where we were standing. Right. And so like tools that we built out, like map the vote, which was a, a pretty crazy system, but it, at the same time, it was, it was interesting. The impact was measured, but, but like, I guess the implications of the technology that were running it were very useful. Right. And, and also kind of, um, not something that I guess long-term would have been, was ultimately sustainable, but still like having a canvassing map that was web-based that, you know, anybody in the country could use and figure out like where their, which of their neighbors were not registered to vote and then go knock on their doors and talk to them was kind of like where we went with that. 
And there were different iterations of it, right? Where like during the election cycle, we would basically flip it off and we'd, we'd turn off the voter reg and we'd turn it on as a canvassing app and, and just have people go turn out their Democratic uh, friends on the same map. It was very cool. I, I mean, I got a lot of death threats <laughs> on the initial iterations of it because I realized that people didn't like it when you published their like their full names out there and where they live on a map that said they didn't vote. There were a lot of different projects that we built out and there was no idea that was really kind of too crazy to kind of tackle or try and build out as long as it was going to have a, a an impact and a measurable impact, right? And that was kind of the important thing. In terms of like identifying like new and innovative ways of using big data and and technology to to kind of like give us an edge, I think yeah, Jeremy Smith is is really good at that. I remember him talking about like when he was in the military, he had maps and he was very intrigued. He was just kind of taken aback that they weren't well used in politics, at least as far as he'd come across it and wanting to have kind of that geographic look at data seemed important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He loves loves the maps. Is the CTO and he was the CEO of like Civitech and we would build things out, right? It was like, you know, we'd run into your typical like co-founder problems that, you know, like I would, I'd get upset if that he was oversimplifying things. And that's become my term since then for like, you know, when somebody's oversimplifying something, I'm like, yeah, it's just dots on a map, right? Because like that was his thing he would always say it was just dots on a map, you know, and I'm just like, okay, yeah, it's just dots on a map. But, you know, it's like everything that makes the dots like useful that kind of falls on the tech side and so we yeah we built out some really like very cool mapping technology i know that civitech still uh has and is used you know uh using a lot of that to the benefit of candidates and and uh the democratic and progressive folks so what what was your involvement or interest in the business side of civitech like your co-founder it's become a funded business now what was your relationship there? And did you like the business side? By that point in my career, I'd kind of become a little disillusioned with business and corporations and startups. It was important to me when we started Civitech that it be, you know, something that could work cooperatively with the nonprofit side of what we had and could also like uh, claim to have some amount of measurable like social impact. So we of course formed it as a B Corp uh, or public benefits corporation and, went through the processes, process of, uh, you know, receiving the, the B Corp certification. We worked with, uh, worked with another guy named Dan Graham, who is a kind of philanthropist here in Austin, uh, who's our third co-founder. Um, and he, you know, I think he kind of helped us steer the organization towards a more culturally and, and community considerate type of company. So I remember, I'm learning that it wasn't just like a standard C corp or something like that. It was had had much more complicated, broad based ownership and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of companies that I that I've worked on or you know co founded, like Civitech is is probably as as good as it gets in terms of like building out a corporate entity that that can claim to be doing some amount of good. You know, is a lot um, of that because of you. No, no, I don't think so. I think it's also because of Jeremy and the other folks that are involved. I think it was the culture. All of our employees were all very mission aligned, very interested in, in, in changing like the outcome of what 2020 was going to look like. It showed. What was the Civitech highlight for you? Yeah, probably the 2020 election. That was probably the highlight there. 
uh, that's kind of when I felt like it was, it was, I was, you know, good to probably, you know, look at doing other things or I thought so at the time. So yeah. Why did you leave? Life is, there's a lot of irony. Uh, I kind of had been pretty taxed by the 2020 stuff. I was definitely was taking, going to take some time off. Because I also, while I was working at Civitech, I was also simultaneously running for state house. It was uh, just another sandbox approach to, you know. I thought you ran in 2022. Did that as well. Okay, as well, I see, yeah. In the same district? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yes. yes. Seemed like, just from looking at the results, it looked like a very tough district. It was super tough, super tough. I didn't go in there, like, with any kind of, like, misconception uh, about whether or not I was going to win, primarily because it was a really tough district. And the second time I did it, it was even more so because it had been redistricted. But it sounds like you were getting a little burned out. I mean, definitely a little burned out. Part of that was also there was a global pandemic uh, that, oh, yeah. that basically kicked off about that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I, I was really keen on doing something there, which I thought was, you know, very <laughs> – that's where the irony it comes in, right? Because, uh, you know, it's like Jeremy Smith is by trade – Theoretically, besides being, you know, special forces, like captain in the army, he was also an epidemiologist. When I left Civitech, a lot of that was to go and work on the pandemic's uh, response. Did you retain ownership after leaving? Yeah, I still have stock in Civitech. So after leaving Civitech, I, you know, got approached by some, and I guess politics is a, is a weird place. Um, I got approached by uh, this woman who wanted help, like, doing data. And I didn't know at the time. And, and she was the ex-wife of a former like state senator here and congressional representative. Um, and so she was one of the co-founders for this other this other group that we had started called COVAC, which was basically a pandemic response team. Civitech, what they're doing in the progressive and political space is, is incredibly important. Do you regret leaving? I mean, no. Uh, not, I mean, no. Not entirely. I, I think the work that I did after I left Civitech was really important too. I like to think it kind of helped save some lives. That's worth, worth yeah. doing. Yeah. We did lots of like testing sites in rural areas and we did lots of, you know, we did mass vaccine clinics and, you know, like all kinds of uh, um, tracking of epidemiological data for the state of Texas and other states and did a lot of really good work. You know, that was, uh, I think, helped. No, I was, I'm not. Uh, I don't regret leaving. I think, I think it was left in very capable, good hands. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the team that that we built there uh, is top notch. The company was literally set up in a way, at least from the tech side, that that I could turn a key and walk off. That's unusual because usually it would be quite a hit to a startup to lose their CTO. Yeah, I think it's less of a hit if you're in the political space because of the cycle-driven nature of everything, right? But certainly, I mean, no. One of the things I learned early on in tech was like that my job was to effectively like work myself out of a job, right? And my one of the big focuses of my career has always been automation and just like removing the human element of things. I was, I, that was one of the reasons I wasn't super popular at Dell. I would often replace people with scripts. We're going to start to see a lot more of that in this space, like with the advent of AI and and, and kind of the, the nature of, of automated systems. But yeah, no, Civitech was set up in such a way that um, it, 
I don't want to say it was certainly not bulletproof, but it was easy to sustain once I was gone on the tech side. The team was very solid. How how did you land at Movement Labs? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question, because part of the reason that I didn't regret leaving Civitech was, you know, you get to a point like in a corporate environment where you start to become more constrained on the types of work you can do. Everything goes under the lens of like stockholders or cap tables or that kind of thing. And early on when Jeremy and I were uh, first uh, working on stuff together, um, I met this guy um, named Yoni. (laughs) He was telling me all about this, this incredible program that he had called Contestory Race. And I thought, wow, that is a really good idea because just the idea that, that like down ballot candidates and recruiting for down ballot candidates and making sure that, that these, that there are races and people can, you know, that there are races that are contested and people that are contesting these, these folks is incredibly important. Like this is like where like one of our big failings was, I think on the democratic side for decades was that, you know, like, the Republican and conservative infrastructure—they put a lot of time into building out their bench and to building out the their local candidate infrastructure. And I think that that that's some place that we really didn't do that uh, in the progressive and Democratic side, and it, it is really you know hurt us, and it's very apparent now. Uh, and so Yoni had this idea anyway. And the, uh, long story short, like he had needed help with maps, and so I did some volunteering, like during the registrative phase of, of the work where uh, I was helping his team identify candidates and races and people to run for office. And that was really cool. And it was, it was a good relationship to have. And we, you know, we partnered with movement labs and contest every race quite a few times over the next uh, several years and, and did some, I, I think some impactful work. I did not realize at the time, like everything that movement labs did. Um, well, it didn't always do all the things it does. <laughs> I mean, right. I first talked yeah. to Yoni in like 2017, I think. It was texting to do, I think, that sort of stuff. But it, he has a kind of a growth mindset from what I can tell about I, I mean, doing yeah, more and more yeah. things. If he thinks it will be impactful, he measures what we're working on based on that, right? And I think that's good. And we're not limited to, you know, <laughs> I mean, to just like progressive turnout. We get to do experimentation on all kinds of things. When... I was doing COVAC and we were doing this big program for the governor's office and the Minnesota Department of Health and using a lot. If it was interesting because there are a lot of uh, parallels between voter outreach mobilization and, and vaccine outreach mobilization. And so we built out this giant, um, we built out a giant database of unvaccinated people for the state of Minnesota at one point. It was actually not a database of vaccinated people. It was a database of unvaccinated people, right? Similar to Um, unregistered voters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big difference there is that a database of vaccinated people would be highly illegal because of HIPAA guidelines. And uh, whereas like the absence of a vaccination is totally legitimate information that anybody can have. We used similar approaches to like how we identified uh, unregistered voters, like with map the vote and, you know, overlaying like a, a list of everybody like, and, and their addresses over a list of all the addresses that had been like had registered voters living at them. You know, we were able to identify all of the addresses that didn't have registered voters. And so it was similar for that. Anyway, so we built out this big program of like multi-tiered engagement and outreach uh, for vaccine and testing for Minnesota. 
And there was a, one of the tiers of that was, of course, a texting provider that was doing a lot of texting. There was a point early on where we kind of ran, um, where we like the texting provider we were using, ran way over budget and, and we were like in a crunch. For whatever reason, I just thought to call Yoni at the time and, and uh, they stepped in and, and really kind of saved the day there. And so like Kovac was, and we were doing a lot of work with, with Movement Labs during the pandemic for that initiative. And so I got more familiar with the different like things that they were working on at that point, I think. Did he talk you into working with him or did you talk him into working with you or how did that go? Oh yeah. I've got this dream that at some point I'm going to get to retire. I'm going to get to go play like uh, pickleball, like on the senior tour or something. I know I mean, you have a pickleball <laughs> shirt on right now. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I do. It's probably my favorite pastime uh, at this point besides of course, you know, family. Yeah, back in, it was last year sometime at after the pandemic operations were winding down, I was like, I'm going to take a nice long vacation. And, and I was talking with Yoni about the program stuff. And he's like, keep, he's like sending me, he's like, you need, you know, I need a CTO. And I'm like, I, was like, I don't think you want me as your CTO. I told him he, he didn't want me as a CTO. He's like, oh, well, I'm going to send you the link and you just need to go and apply. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> so it's well, like, well, just know. let me stop you on that. So what was it in your mind about yourself that you were thinking he probably doesn't want you? I mean, you know, I don't know. I ask a lot of hard questions. I'm, you know, (laughs) I can sometimes not be the, uh, sometimes I'm not the easiest person to deal with. Honestly, like someone who's CTO who does ask the hard questions seems like a benefit if you can handle it. Yeah, absolutely. I think in theory, I'm not a detriment. (laughs) I am probably more of an asset, but at that point I was, I was really tired. I've been working frontline pandemic stuff, like not just big data and public health, but I, I mean, I was like the boots on the ground, like operations director for like some mass clinics and, and for testing sites. And there was a lot of hard work there. Um, and I was, I was pretty worn out. So I kind of sat on, on, on that for a couple few months. I am almost 50 years old and like there is probably a pretty good chance that there are way better, more intelligent, younger people out there that, that could do the same work. And if, you know, given long enough, I'm certain he could have found somebody who was, who was probably better. You certainly had come to a lot of relevant experience and you also seem to have developed a passion right around the sort of stuff that he wanted to do. That sounds like a very good fit to me. You're not entirely wrong. And not just that, but like the work that I guess at, uh, sometime at the beginning of this year, I just came to the realization, like if I was going to was gonna go back and do full-time work for somebody, like there were very few companies that I would go and work for. And so I kind of made a short list in my head and, and Movement Labs was on that short list of about two or three companies. One of them was, well, you know, of course, like probably would have been Civitech as well, but I, I really just didn't know that I could go back into that space because I wanted to do other things. But being what it is, I, I also was, I was really serious about this pickleball thing. And so sometime, you know, after January, I guess Yoni called me up again and, and he convinced me that I could at the very least go through the process of the application and, and submission and, and give him feedback on it so that, you know, they could. Sounds smart of him. He's a pretty yeah, savvy guy in that regard. He, yeah, straight up just, yeah, tricked me. No, I wouldn't say tricked me. He figured out how to recruit you. Yeah, he did. He's he's pretty good at that stuff. Um, 
I got to give him that. And, and honestly though, like he, that wasn't the part that convinced me, you know, it was really kind of, it was interesting because I interviewed with a lot of the folks who were on the team there and, uh, and realized that, the the makeup of that organization right was not entirely different than like Civitech, which is another organization that I really admire, not just because of the fact that I helped found it, but because of the people that run it. I was kind of surprised that the number of really dedicated and passionate individuals that were working on ensuring that our democracy continues to function and of course like eradicating things like fascism and making a difference. And it wasn't a terribly difficult like decision to co- to go and work there. Well, how has it been since you joined? It's been it's been interesting. It's been a little like drinking from the fire hose, you know. Um, <laughs> it's uh, there are so many parallels between like Muma Labs and Civitec, and not just in terms of impact, uh, but in things like the amount of extraneous data they 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 generated. I mean, when you look at like Civitec, it's like it was set up to basically like compartmentalize all of that, sort it, and and manage it in a very data driven way, and. <sighs> When I walked into Movement Labs, it's like, okay, well, this place hasn't had a CTO in place for five years, but they've still been basically generating as much tech debt and and data as 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 the place that I left before. So there was a lot to do. Yeah, there was a whole lot to do. It was challenging at first, just figuring out like where to even start. Uh, but um, uh, and at that point, and that was part of the reason that I actually had agreed to come on was because like, I looked at that and I was like, oh dear, this is, you know, it would, it would be tragic if the value that was in a lot of this data that's been generated over these years was somehow like, you know, not necessarily captured <laughs> in retrospect, had I known back in 2018, 2019, what I would be dealing with today, I would have, I would a hundred percent have continued volunteering for Yoni over the years. You've only been there a fairly short time, but what are the kinds of things that you've been working on? Getting all of the data under control has been a big deal. And it's an interesting organization because they've probably generated more disposition and contact and outreach data than I, I think a lot of other groups that are out there put together and trying to kind of like wrap my head around all of the different programs, all of the different things that they do. I mean, they've got teams that are doing, you know, just really good work, like all over the place. You know, they've got advocacy teams. They've got a team for black-led organizations. They've got a team that basically comes, sits around and comes up with crazy ideas all day and then goes and does them, you know? And, and so it's like, that's, I mean, that's out. what a lab is supposed to do, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. definitely. And that's, I think that's probably the thing that I really enjoy about working there right now is, uh, is getting to do that piece of it, right? And getting to work with all of those different groups. But figuring out a way to kind of like tie all of those very different internal organizations together along like a common like back end set of internal internal services, I think has kind of been been a lot of the work that we've been doing there and building out new like new processes and technologies for doing, you know, outreach and engagement in a digital way has, has been a big piece of the new stuff that we've been working on. One of the challenges we have in the progressive ecosystem with data is how many different places it lives. We have developed significant organizations that help it move around, as you're probably pretty well well aware of. But how do you guys integrate or do you with other players and other data stores? I mean, uh, any way we can, really. I understand you are absolutely no stranger to to that to those issues. On our end, you know, we kind of 
leaned into, you know, BigQuery and Google technology and building out, you know, single source of truth entity resolution uh, systems that that are able to tie all of the the disparate stuff together. You know, a lot of the a lot of the data that was generated years ago wasn't necessarily stored in ways that that it could be tracked back necessarily. And so going back through this, the original source data and identifying a lot of that that's based that's distributed all over numerous different types of data sets uh, is is tricky. But working with the different vendors, you know, tying them together this year, it's been trying to work a lot with groups like the Movement Cooperative and and Community Tech Alliance and Stack Labs and and the DNC and state parties and, and trying to kind of like bridge that gap, which I feel like movement labs, much like Civitech is kind of in a good position to do because we're not really constrained by the soft side, hard side sort of equation that, that a lot of organizations are put in place in order to mitigate data across this ecosystem. So do you have a project of your own that you wish you could launch through this lab? I, <laughs> or have you? There are a few projects that I'm working on <laughs> currently. Um, you know that. Like I what? Never, I mean, I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean. Not public yet, or something. They're not public yet. I'm. I'm hoping that they'll be, you know, significantly disruptive, though, in a good way for us. Disruptive of what? Uh, you know the, the status quo. I feel like contention and, and just, you know, the disruptive nature of, of like new technology or even like existing technology that's employed in a new way, it has a growth effect on the rest of our ecosystem, right? And not just that, but I mean, you look at things like, honest, honest to God, like my, one of my biggest concerns every time I build something and I, because I built a lot of stuff that's been used like in ways that I wish it hadn't been used, you know? Um, like, uh, I'll tell the story for like, a, sometime I'll tell you the story about like when I helped invent spam, the point I'm trying to make here is uh, when you look at technology, like the stuff we built at Civitech and register to vote, um, and you look at those techniques and the organizing like methods that we employed, it, it didn't take the conservative and Republican side, like more than uh, two cycles to basically replicate this stuff. Right. And so it was a very short turnaround time before the, the technology and processes that we created were basically being used against us by better funded organizations with better data, honestly, I think. And that's kind of upsetting. Yeah, it is. Right. But I mean, that's, that's, that is tech. Right. And so, um, coming out with the, you know, the disruptive stuff that helps us stay a, a step ahead, I think is important. And then at the same time, when you talk about like funding deserts and things in the progressive side, like this is, this is really important stuff that, you know, like if, if we don't address it, like we'll have a long-term like lasting impact, much very similar to, to like how like not recruiting candidates back in the last two decades has had a lasting impact on, on our, on our ability to really do work in, in some of these states. What should I have asked you that I haven't? Goodness gracious. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, um, gosh. Yeah. That's a really good question. And I don't have an answer for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, I want to ask you about pickleball slightly because there are two sports that are supposed to be the fastest growing of late in this country. One of them is pickleball. Do you know what the other one is? I, what is it? I don't know. It's disc golf. Oh, cool. And so that second one is the one that I've been playing for a long time. I played disc golf a lot too. Do you? 
Okay. I, I used to, yeah, before. Well, yeah. then I'm going to have to invite you up to my bonfire where you can play my course up in Vermont. Ooh, that would be awesome. Yes, please. That sounds very cool. What is it about pickleball? I mean, like I played tennis as a young person, not very well, but what is it about pickleball that got you going on it? I mean, it was something I could do during the pandemic for starters. When I was growing up, like the, the, the only other thing that I really enjoyed doing a lot was playing racquetball. Um, and I did that for a couple decades. Uh, and I feel like it's similar. But honestly, like to me, I feel like, especially during the 2022 cycle, it was a really good way for me to engage with the other side of the partisan equation, kind of be a unifier. You can enjoy a sport without regard to politics with any, with any nice person, right? Politics always comes into the equation for me, you know, but what's interesting is I play with a huge number of like ultra MAGA Republicans, you know, that are, um, that, that I've been playing with for, you know, a couple of years now. And, uh, it just, it cracked me up because like when I was, some of them were, would wear my t-shirts, uh, when I was like from my state house run, like, um, which was interesting. And, uh, I was, it was surprising by the end of like the cycle because they all knew I was, you know, that I was running for the office and the fact that I was able to flip votes that way was just kind of baffling to me. Plus, honestly, I mean, it's a great opportunity to, cause I'm not, I'm pretty good at it and, and I can hit the ball really hard. And so like getting to beat up on some of these guys on the court is a lot of fun for me. It is a kind of a unifier. It has really kind of put me in a position to interact with people that, that I really wasn't interacting with before. Honestly, I thought like working the vaccine stuff, like that, that would not have been the case, but it was, you know, we were, it wasn't very long before the, they put the vaccine out that it became really kind of highly politicized. Right. You just don't interact with, uh, with people in the same way in a public healthcare setting, but uh, like on a pickleball court, everything is on the table. It's just a lot of fun. Taking one step back, we are clearly still, in this country in a precarious spot. If we get like a Jim Jordan in charge of the house and we get a Donald Trump in charge of uh, the White House and they flip the Senate, all these things are well in the realm of possibility and taking us to a place that's gonna be just terrifying from, from my standpoint. What are your thoughts about like where we are as a society and why and what we can do about it? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, yeah, I think it would be a lot scarier if, if somehow they, you know, the other side could really get their shit together. I guess that's my biggest fear: is like you end up with a trifecta on a national level, and and they and have somebody their, competent running it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like you know what happened with like Minnesota, but on the other side of the coin, right? Like where like they just kind of stepped in with a plan and they just executed it right off, you know. And that I think is probably one of the biggest dangers that we're looking at. I feel like the, the, the damage that the Trump administration and, and the actions that it, that they took have, has done to like our electoral system in general, especially in, in, in red states, is, is, is significant at this point. It's just weird to me. You'd never think that, that Donald Trump would be the, the leader of a you know, far right-wing conservative fascist movement back when we were kids, right? I mean, it just wasn't a thing, like the, the thought of that. But now it's like to see how fast things happen. It's scary. That's the real danger, right? Is that they're in terms of like limitations and what they can do. 
if they had somebody competent leading them, <laughs> we were all in danger at that point. He's learned a lot about appointing loyalists and there's a lot of plans that they have in place to politicize the civil service. My question more to you is like, you, you live in this world where you can play pickleball with MAGA people and they are our neighbors and most of them are pretty decent people when you don't get into politics, but collectively and with the kind of leadership that's exceeding to the Trumpian vision, we can go down a scary, scary path. So how do we operate as citizens and people who are parts of organizations that are in the fight? Yes. There are people that are easily led, right? And that is just the nature of of humans. And I think being able to humanize both sides of it to those folks and and to us is important. It was really easy to kind of unfriend my uncle or whoever after 2016 on on Facebook and and really kind of get past that. But it's just a really difficult thing to, to overcome, right? Like you will always be able to weaponize the most inhumane and, and I guess just worst parts of people. Everyone's using the immigration thing all around the world, for example, right? Yeah. And I've been using that for, you know, centuries really. Is there anything at movement labs that is crossing the divide rather than accelerating the, the democratic side? I think so. I like to think that a lot of the work that gets done is when I was running for office, you know, it's, it's very easy to run for something instead of running against something. And I think a lot of the work that we do is, is, is work that's working for kind of a common beneficial goal to that. end, I feel like the, the work we're doing, even if it is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, enabling the, the more progressive and democratic sides of our political system, I think it's still beneficial to both sides. Right. It's be- beneficial to people more broadly. Yeah, people. Yeah, it's good. Whatever's good for people is good for people, right? You're never going to be able to get rid of all of the all of the bad people or all the mean people or all the people who just don't know any better. Or just see the world through a different lens. Maddie, it's been really fun talking to you. I, I loved getting the, your story and, and early Civitech. Is there anything else you want to say? Yeah. Yeah. I want to come play disc golf. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> you say, you said Vermont. Um, nice. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to, I think all the people that listen to your podcast probably already know how important 2024 is, right? Probably, but I don't think we can emphasize it enough. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I mean, you it's, know? <laughs> it's, and God knows what wars are going to be going on. You know, by that time we're already in yeah. Two. Yeah, it's pretty awful. I'm starting to have trouble reading the news again. I hear from uh, friends that like they're going to sit out the race because they're they're like disillusioned with Biden or something. And I'm like, you need to coach your kids a little bit more about the difference between the teams in this moment in time. Most people don't engage in politics in the way that, that the people who do, do. And, and that's why you can have a broad range of opinions that are not necessarily grounded in reality. reality. (laughs) That was huge in the tech industry. You know, it's like the amount that you don't know that you don't know. Right. It's like, is insane. It's like young people Um, think they know everything and they don't. Oh, they do. They know everything. Well, they think (laughs) they do. I know, but they don't. And people who don't pay attention or 
pay attention to misinformation don't so when like i first became like politically aware and uh, in a a much bigger way like was kind of upset with those people who didn't really know what the hell was going on right but that's 90 percent of the people out there right i mean um and and i think it's but you know in terms of like folks that are working on solving that problem moving forward and building that awareness there are a lot of good organizations and groups folks that are you know building out new tools and new tech and programs what's important is to me i see so much competitiveness amongst ourselves and it's like i I think you know as we move into 2024 we really need to figure out how to how to kind of get past like the infighting and you know the democratic each democrat type of mentality i feel like we're generally doing better at that than many times in our history and better than they are in the Republican side. But yeah, anyone who's doing something knows that we're all humans and we do human things. You ever want to see some of that dem on dem violence? You come on down to Texas. I mean, there's a lot of it here. To... Maybe I'm too far away to see. Anyway, I think I should probably let you get back to work. Absolutely. That was Maddie Eden. She's at movementlabs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.